Hello, this is Glenda Taylor. Welcome to the One and All Wisdom Podcast. Today I want to speak in this podcast about something that happened to me that I think bears on the situation in our world today. Let me tell you my story, and then you'll see, I think, the relevance to today. Years ago, I went once a month as a volunteer minister to a federal maximum security prison for men. There, I met with Native American prisoners. They were from different tribes from all over the country housed in this Texas prison. All of them had committed major crimes, not just some minor drug-related offense. Most of their crimes were violent. Many of the prisoners were lifers. In the room where I met with them, one prisoner at a time, a heavy reinforced glass partition separated me from the prisoner, although he'd be seated directly opposite me where I could see his eyes and his expressions very clearly. I would hear his voice, and he would hear mine over earphones. Some of the prisoners shuffled into and out of the room to meet with me in shackles or leg irons or whatever they're called, because those prisoners were considered a potential danger to the guards or other prisoners. Why was I there? I had been requested to come by a chaplain and later by the prisoners themselves. For years before that, I'd been doing similar work at a women's minimum security prison, and so I was known to the prison system. Why did I, a woman, agree to go to a men's prison? What was it I meant to accomplish, small as I was and knew I was, in the face of any prisoner's life experiences that had spiraled him into whatever dreadful thing he had done? And they were dreadful things he had done, usually. I listened to horrific stories, things I could barely stand to hear spoken, especially while calmly looking back at the person who was telling me what he had done sometimes telling me with his head down, unable or unwilling to look at me, or sometimes with tears in his eyes, or sometimes staring back at me defiantly or numbly. But I did listen. I made myself listen somehow to story after story of lives gone tragically awry. Oh, while I did keep an open heart, I knew that there was a good possibility that any particular prisoner was not telling me the truth, that he was possibly attempting to manipulate me for whatever reason. I knew he might be lying to me and that he might actually believe he was telling the truth, but I knew that either way, whatever he was saying was certainly only one small part of the whole story. His victims or others would have a different point of view altogether, would likely contradict him or rage at him for whatever he was saying and would even possibly want him dead rather than sympathized with by an outsider like me. And I knew that simply believing in some social standard of civility, honesty, decency, or right behavior, or having a vague notion of compassion for all humanity would not cut it here. No naive Pollyanna attitude would stand up to the toxic atmosphere that suffused everything in that place where some, not all of course, but some of the men shoving along in a long line in hallways between cell blocks, eyes 
wildly darting over me if I happened to pass them by on my way to the chaplain's office or elsewhere. They might be half mad. And furthermore, I was aware of the energy and attitudes of the prison guards as well. I felt most keenly that underneath the thin veneer of their official authority and the guns and billy clubs and other things they had, those guards were men too. Men who, I could tell, dealt with their own feelings. Among the feelings of the guards, I was sure, was a chronic awareness and indeed fear of real and perceived threats to their authority, to their own safety, and to their own sense of manhood and power, and their own attitudes toward the crimes those prisoners had committed. I always felt every time I was there that the place was a powder keg, full of potentially explosive and conflicting energies, personal, cultural, and institutional. Yes, I too was afraid. Yes, I was on guard. Yes, I was prepared to disbelieve or disagree with the logic or truth of what I heard from anybody. So why was I there? Well, here's how I saw it. Whatever had happened in the past, there were various things that could happen next. First, the prisoner could get worse, so to speak, to his own detriment and to the detriment of his family, his children, his wife, his parents, and society in general. Whether he stayed in prison or got out, he could get worse. Or potentially he could stay the same, still a threat, still a burden on others and to society and to himself. Or possibly, just possibly, by some slim chance, perhaps, he could get better, even if just a little better, for his sake, for his family's sake, for society's sake. That was the outcome I would prefer to see happen. And we know that in just very few small instances, there were people in prison that were more or less innocent, some in fact innocent certainly innocent in certain ways of the harm that their life in society had done to them and their reaction to it had been perhaps dreadful. But if there was a change, a slight change I could make, that was what I would want to have happen. That seemed like a pragmatic <laughs> choice to me, not an emotional one. No matter how much I might disagree with a person's actions or statements, I believe that an attempt to reach a new level of communication can always be helpful, that people should always be heard. So I was willing to go to that prison once a month and for a few hours listen to those prisoners' voices that sometimes told me stories from hell. I had no great expectation of miracles, but I went as a part of my own spiritual practice, and I trusted that some good could come of bearing witness to the reality of another human being's experiences. Now here's an interesting thing. Not one of those particular prisoners I spoke with tried to tell me he was innocent. Remember that I said these were all Native American prisoners I met with and many of them had felt for a lifetime rage against the dominant culture that had for more than 400 years so little understood the values or the way of life of their people 
Their sense of outrage was generalized and hardened over generations, with a long history of violent offenses on all sides. The rage of some of those prisoners had boiled over in such a way that their violent crimes were one result. Tragically, all too often, their violence was also directed against their own families, their wives or children or other people in their own tribe. So most of the prisoners were struggling with a certain amount of shame over the sorrow or problems they had created for their families, for their parents, abuse of a wife or child or whatever. And for some of them, their unresolved rage and outrage that had led them to murder or whatever other horrible thing they had done, that rage was still there, often turned against anyone or everyone, and sometimes even against themselves. But nonetheless, they wanted to be heard, to be seen, to be a person somehow, to someone who would listen, even a woman, maybe especially a woman. So they chose to come and talk to me. And so I listened. I didn't try to convince them of some abstract theory about right and wrong. Occasionally, I offered a bit of my own sense of how things were or could be. I used whatever counseling skills I had carefully, and I prayed with them in the way of Native peoples. I brought sacred objects that were symbolic of their spirituality and of mine that were used to express prayers. I don't know how much good I did for them, but some of them really did pour out their hearts to me, and their family sent me in the native way sage and sweet grass and tobacco to burn when I said prayers for the prisoners. Once I was asked by a prisoner to come as a witness to a court hearing to testify on that prisoner's behalf about what that person's traditional spiritual practice was and whether it was or was not being violated in prison, and I went to his trial and testified. I was in communication, too, with a person on death row. I was to have accompanied him to his execution, but he was transferred out of that prison before that time came. I was also on a committee with some of the staff from several different prisons in the federal system, where I was meant to inform the Federal Prison Administration about what Native American spirituality involved and how prisoners could practice their spirituality in prison, especially men. Under President Jimmy Carter's administration, you see, what rules had been set in place that all prisoners in a federal prison had to be able to practice in prison their spirituality according to their own tradition of choice. When I was appointed to this committee, I I reached out to every tribe in the country by mail, asking for their input to me about what they would like to have included in what I shared with prison officials, explaining as best I could the limitations of what the prison considered possible, and asking for their ideas about any changes that could be suggested given the restrictions of prison itself, and considering all the differences between the practices of various native tribes. And I heard back from many of the uh, people in the native tribes. As I said before, I'd done this sort of thing earlier when for years 
I'd worked as a volunteer at a minimum security prison for Native American women prisoners, bringing them the Native American pipe ceremony and sweat lodge and conversation and prayer and community. I was able to do this at that women's prison because of wonderful black Baptist chaplain who had sought me out and had me come to that prison so that the Native women there were fairly served. And with her cooperation, I brought one of the first sweat lodge ceremonies to a federal prison back at that time. The chaplain even participated in the sweat lodge ceremony on one occasion, and she told me afterward that she had told many people in the prison that she had seen more sincerity in the spirituality of these Native women with their unfamiliar ways than she often saw among her more familiar faith groups. She'd also had me come and address the entire prison staff from the top to the bottom about Native American values and attitudes and spirituality. Even the guard at the entrance of that women's prison who had asked me one day whether Wazi Woozy would strike him dead if he touched the basket I was carrying. Even he sat and listened when I spoke that day at the, to the prison staff, and I think he was willing to learn something that day when I spoke to them about people so different from himself and who, no matter what mistakes they had made previously, now had legal and moral rights just as he did. I was most impressed at the willingness of this chaplain and of the officials at that particular prison to work together for the greater good. I knew, of course, that things would be different in a men's maximum security prison, and I knew that I, as a woman, would have to deal differently with both the prisoners and the prison staff. But I had hopes that on that committee, at least, at the men's prison, I might make some small difference somehow. But after some time, I changed my mind. The prison officials there let me know that they were, in fact, more concerned about the dangers of gangs in the prison than about anything else. I could understand their concern, even their fear, about the gangs. I knew the extreme Power plays often violent even in prison that these gangs concern themselves with. And this was a threat, real and exaggerated, no doubt, in the minds of the prison officials, the guards, even the chaplains, who felt that they had to hold on to their own official power and position to keep things tamped down, to keep things under control. Those prison administrators had their minds set on what was going to be done, what was right in their experience or opinion, what was traditional for them where prison was concerned, without regard for what was traditional where native practices were concerned. So any little changes I suggested were met by them as a threat to the fragile sense of security the guards and officials were able to maintain. And so they were going to act according to their own views, no matter what. Views which they couched in terms of safety for the prison staff and other prisoners, and even for me, a volunteer. I couldn't fault their honest intent in that regard, if, if it was honest. But I grieved that they could not hear the other side of the situation. About even the few things I believe could be done safely. About what 
things would make some improvement even for them in the behaviors of the native prisoners while they were in prison, even in the behavior of gang members, perhaps. But these officials would not communicate with me or with the Native American prisoners in such a way as to make things better all around for everybody. Instead, they were intent on stonewalling any changes to their prison's procedures. I came to feel that I was just being used by the prison bureaucracy. By having me on a committee, they could give the appearance of fulfilling their legal obligations when, in fact, they weren't doing what was required by law to serve the admittedly unusual spiritual needs of Native American prisoners, and that the prison officials' reasoning about it involved their fear, legitimate or otherwise. I learned in that experience, though probably not for the first time, that some people, whoever they may be, prisoners or jailers, administrators or civilians, this person or that person, some people are so ruled by fear, real or imagined, that they seem incapable of seriously taking in other points of view or of checking the validity of their own assessments. Perhaps all of us have a certain level of fear, fear about any perceived threat to one's person, one's family, one's property, one's rights, one's political party, one's country. Many of us feel a visceral fear when there is a threat, real or imagined, to one's personal or economic or political or social position or power. And that fear inhibits some people from listening to opposing points of view, inhibits them from open-minded discourse about working out a middle road that is not just a compromise, but is a third way, somehow better than the two extreme positions. Some people are good at operating like that. Some people aren't. Some people are entrenched in attitudes generations old, stereotypes, generalized prejudices against other groups. For years, for example, some American men who fought the Japanese in World War II would refuse ever after to buy a car made in Japan, even though their children and grandchildren thought that was ridiculous. Some people can have reasonable civil discussions around such things others cannot. Some people are accustomed to working in a sort of scientific way, examining premises and hypotheses and altering their assumptions as evidence is revealed. And some people are not. Some people are willing to work things out, but they are so uninformed or misinformed that their perspectives are skewed from the beginning. Some people are so attached to their own ideas that any deviation from that is threatening, and they sometimes act out in a variety of ways when that happens. They may do violence, as many of these prisoners I dealt with did, or they may use any positions of power they have, like the prison officials, to maintain their power over the situation and even manipulate the system 
to see that their power over the system is maintained, as I felt that those prison officials did. Eventually, I resigned from that committee after informing the prison officials, the prisoners, and every tribe in the country that I felt that I was being used to pretend that something was being done to fulfill legal requirements when, in fact, it was not, at least in that prison and in my experience. I left that committee and not long after, of course, left that particular prison work, but I did not go without speaking up about my experience. I don't know if that did any good, but I felt in good conscience that speaking up to all the powers that be on all sides was the right thing to do. And again, in a pragmatic way, I thought my energies could be better used elsewhere. But I was glad I had tried. Afterward, I received letters from many of the prisoners for a long time, and twice I received drawings that they had done of native spiritual symbols. I've used a picture of one of those drawings as the image connected with this podcast as it appears on my website. I reflect on all this today, years later. At a time when it seems to me that my experience at the prison is sort of replicated in our general culture, stonewalling is increasingly common. People on all sides of the social and political spectrum seem to have lost the willingness to listen to each other civilly and productively. To reason together, as we used to say, is much in demand but little in evidence. When differing cultural values and racial histories and mores are involved, especially when we feel threatened regarding them. Communication is difficult. In dealing with centuries of misunderstanding, violence, and retribution, of ingrained attitudes that may have to do as much with the past as with the present, given all that, making changes that heal, that allow us to move forward to a new level of understanding altogether. All this is now, sadly, an entangled and tragic mess, I think. I feel as sad about that today as I did back then when I resigned from that committee at the prison, feeling as I do that to refuse to listen to other perspectives is a mistake because it's counterproductive. It does not change things for the better. It makes things worse, usually much worse. The person who is unheard, undealt with, rightly or wrongly, invariably begins to build up resentment and ammunition to shift the positions of power so that their own needs are met. It can become a vicious circle where reconciliation seems impossible. Reconciliation between opposing points of view is not the same thing as compromise. No one needs to give up their own values or history or even opinions to achieve a level of reconciliation by listening to another person. I have personally seen reconciliation happen. Many of us have seen it in documentaries showing us reconciliation despite generations of violent confrontation in South Africa and Northern Ireland and in reconciliation programs bringing together veterans of the Vietnam War and the, quote, enemy Vietnamese soldiers 
who have met after the war in various programs to facilitate amazing experiences of forgiveness, understanding, and reconciliation. Once when I was in attendance at a Women's International Peace Conference in Scotland, I heard personal accounts from people working on reconciliation in war-torn places like Kosovo and other places, in places where violence, genocide, and terrible things had been done, one side to another. The stories I heard then from people who had been personally involved of reconciliation, those accounts were so inspiring, offering hope to me that true reconciliation and change can break even generational chains of fear, hatred, and violence. I was asked by one of those people at that conference if I would consider joining with their group to do this international work abroad, and my heart was greatly interested in saying yes, but my own particular family obligations at the time precluded my considering it. But I have never forgotten those hopeful stories, and I'm more sure now than ever about how essential reconciliation of opposing parties is. So I look about me today and listen to the fraught political discourse. And I watch as the rage and the fear and the power struggles escalate into violence, into a dangerous loss of confidence in government, in the press, in anything except power gathered by any means somehow into one's own hands. I watch as my beloved country descends into what feels like lawless disregard for constitutional norms, descends dangerously close to anarchy, as so many seem to be losing touch with the values etched into our Constitution with the blood of our ancestors, the blood of the many, many people of varying traditions who have fought for decency, honesty, integrity, justice, equality of opportunity, religious and economic freedom, and of respect and concern for the earth and the climate and for the rest of creation besides humans. Though humans are much on my mind these days, as they seem to be the ones with power to make changes that could make things better, if they would, they have the power to do that. Power, that word again. Fear of loss of power from a perceived threat, real or imagined, is, it seems to me, at the center of all the divisive issues before us, whether it be issues of abortion, racial justice, white supremacy, climate change, economic peril, governmental regulations, gun control, globalization, gender equality, whatever it is, the question of who has power who feels powerless and wants or needs or deserves more power? Who is willing to do what to hold on to power? These questions have in their background always a certain sort of fear, fear that can be amplified and manipulated on all sides, creating rage and outrage, retribution and violence. Rage like that experienced by those Native American men prisoners I met with, whose rage had eventually driven them to do terrible, unlawful things. 
and also some of the prison guards who had been driven to do terrible things, believing somehow that they were doing them for righteous reasons, that the end justified the means. I do not believe that. Why? I think of those guards in that prison that I watched and listened to, and I saw the fear rippling just under the surface of their uniforms, their human awareness that at any moment someone might overpower them and do them harm. Is that not how many people feel today? People of color, police, immigrants, rural, impoverished people, and people on all sides. Is that not how they feel today? Someone may somehow overpower me or us and do us harm. And so let me hold on to or let me acquire whatever power I can to protect myself and mine and what I believe in. And so as all of us do what we can to protect ourselves and ours, the question is, do we do it ever or all too often, consciously or unconsciously, without regard for others, and thus without regard for inevitable negative consequences? Do we allow ourselves to become blind to others and their needs or opinions as we justify our own needs for security and personal power? Do we begin to harden off and solidify layers of our consciousness, building up permanent defensiveness, self-justification, followed by righteous indignation and then generalized blaming and condemnation of others and so on, until as more and more of us on all sides are caught in these spirals, the increasing rage and violence and lawlessness bottoms us all out in a place none of us ever wanted to be. And it all started with basic human fear. And so it seems to me the question is for all of us on all sides today of every issue, can we look at our own hidden or unacknowledged fears and anxieties that are behind our opinions and actions and deal with them honestly? And, and, can we recognize the same fear in others, fear that also may be hidden and unacknowledged. And how can we best, most pragmatically, deal with their fears and our own? If in doing so we discard honesty, justice, and decency along the way of defending ourselves, what then? How can we be safe even if we are momentarily successful in forcing our way in gaining or holding power, when the offended party is bil busy building up ammunition against us in retribution. We all know that many in the police forces in our country are good people doing good and necessary work, while we also know that all too often, too many that are in positions of authority and in possession of deadly weapons have abused their power and done violent, non-permissible things at great cost to individuals and minority cultures and to society as a whole in the name of law and order. 
We also know that most protesters on the streets today are nonviolent, and we can agree, I hope, that violent, destructive protest is never permissible, though we may understand why powerless people might be driven to unreasonable excess. It's still counterproductive, illegal, and wrong. Many of us want to start working diligently and honorably to find common ground, common solutions, and to begin reconciliation with changes made for the better all around. As I learned working in the prison system, positive change requires mutual listening, difficult, painful listening followed by acknowledgement and self-reflection about what we hear. And sometimes it requires speaking out instead of just listening. Speaking up, even to power, especially to power. Always, I think, healing comes with compassion, but compassion without condoning, understanding without allowing hurt and harmful actions. And it requires becoming clear about and taking responsibility for our own actions, our own hidden, unacknowledged attitudes and opinions, perhaps built up over generations and centuries, acknowledging the history of our own group's actions against others and making whatever amends are appropriate, and forgiving, and being forgiven on all sides, on all sides. So, at my age now, I reflect on all this. I offer my prayers still, and lift my voice daily sometimes hourly, for peace, reconciliation, understanding, forgiveness, justice, equality, simple human kindness, and decency. I get discouraged, of course, as we all do, but I still believe in hope and in attempts at reconciliation. I still believe in listening to everyone even, even especially, those least lovable in my own eyes. That's what I've been thinking about lately, and I send these words and these reflections on my experiences along to you for whatever they may be worth to you. I hope today you deal gently with yourself and others, especially those you disagree with or who you might want to condemn for whatever reason. We're all struggling. None of us have gone far. We all need each other. We need each other's attentive, if guarded, listening and each other's cooperation in making big, important, appropriate changes. We need to hear each other's opposite points of view so that we can get the big picture beyond our own necessarily limited perspective. We need to come to some agreements and make changes together.
and ultimately, we need each other's forgiveness more than ever. This is Glenda Taylor. Thank you for being with me here on this podcast. Join me again next time on another topic. And join me always on the website at oneandallwisdom.com. Thank you.